Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this chance to gather this day in a land of freedom, in a place where we can hear about the freedom and deliverance that is ours in Christ Jesus. May your spirit attend all that is said and all that we think, and may our hearts be convicted by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this summer we've been talking about frames. That's been the theme, but we're not talking about the wooden things that go around pictures. It's, it's a metaphor. Frames meaning doctrines, fundamental teachings of the church. And the idea being that, that frames are really wonderful, but, but if all we do is focus on the frame, we miss the point. The point of the frame is to bring out the picture. And that's the way it is with doctrines. That is the way it is with fundamental beliefs. The point of those beliefs is not that we would fixate on them, but that looking through the frame they make, we would see Jesus clearly. Doctrines give us clarity and a common starting point for life and faith. But we always have to be careful with doctrines because they can, if we don't carefully monitor them, become the focus of our faith. They're designed to help us focus, not be the focus. When it comes to doctrines, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has laid out what it calls 28 fundamental beliefs. If you were to go to the Seventh-day Adventist Church webpage, you'd see a heading that said beliefs. If you clicked on that, a page would come up that gave a summary on one side. You went down a little ways, you'd see a PDF where you could click and get the official listing of the 28 fundamental beliefs. But before you got to any of them, you would find some very important words. And I want to again today begin with those important words that read like this. Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as their only creed. The Bible is your source. And hold certain fundamental beliefs to be the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. These beliefs, as set forth here, constitute the church's understanding and expression of the teaching of Scripture. Revision of these statements may be expected at a general conference session when the church is led by the Holy Spirit to a fuller understanding of Bible truth or finds better language in which to express the teaching of God's holy word. The meaning of it is, these are the frames as we understand them now. But don't get so committed to the language we came up with that it allows you to violate the language of the Bible from which we have tried to draw the frames. We're not a people who establish creeds. We just try to agree on understandings. We've talked about some different frames so far. We talked about the Bible. We talked about the frame of creation. That's a very important frame because without the frame of creation, the picture of Jesus gets pretty weird. We talked about the Sabbath. We talked about prophets last week. Today, salvation. Our title, Being Saved. And I think it's a very fitting topic for July 4th because this is the day that we recognize and celebrate the great freedoms that are ours in being American. 
freedoms that were won for us by countless soldiers and statesmen who went before us to win these things on our behalf. Indeed, the greatest freedom came to us by someone who went before and won it. That greatest freedom we have is salvation won for us by Jesus Christ. And so on this day of the recognition of freedom, I want to speak to you about salvation. There really are three doctrines or three fundamental beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that touch on this issue. In fact, a lot of the others do as well, but there are three in particular that I think we need to look at to really understand what we mean when we say salvation and being saved. And their fundamental beliefs, number nine, number 10, and number 11. Now don't get hung up on the order, they just, it's kind of an arbitrary ordering, but you gotta lay them out somehow. So this is nine, 10, and 11 that we're gonna look at today. Now also understand, these are fairly lengthy. And some of the wording in these is a little more theological than you might be used to. But after we've gone through, I'm going to give you an easier way to remember the three of them. Yet I think it's worth our time to work through here in this exact language. So here we go. Fundamental belief number nine, entitled Life, Death, and the Resurrection of Christ. In Christ's life of perfect obedience to God's will, his suffering, death, and resurrection, God provided the only means of atonement for human sin so that those who by faith accept this atonement may have eternal life, and the whole creation may better understand the infinite and holy love of the Creator. This perfect atonement vindicates the righteousness of God's law and the graciousness of His character, for it both condemns our sin and provides for our forgiveness. The death of Christ is substitutionary and expiatory, reconciling and transforming. The resurrection of Christ proclaims God's triumph over the forces of evil, and for those who accept the atonement, assures their final victory over sin and death. It declares the lordship of Jesus Christ, before whom every knee in heaven and on earth will bow. Now, there's some heavier theology in there with words like substitutionary or expiatory or reconciling or transforming. We're not going to spend our time trying to unpack those words. It's very interesting studies, but not necessarily useful for what we need to do today. They're, they're all biblical concepts, but they are also constructed theologies. And I think they're good theologies as well. But what I want you to notice in this statement is not those specifics, but rather the way it manages to take a balanced view. It, it states in there that this perfect atonement of Christ vindicates the righteousness of God's law, but also the graciousness of his character. It brings it together. And how does it do that? Well, it both condemns our sin, we do not make light of that, but at the same time provides a way to forgiveness. I think it's well worded, but there is more that needs to be said. 
namely our experience in Jesus' work. And then this is what fundamental belief number 10 says, and it's entitled experience of salvation. So let's go on and see what number 10 says. In infinite love and mercy, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Led by the Holy Spirit, we sense our need, acknowledge our sinfulness, repent of our transgressions, and exercise faith in Jesus as Lord and Christ, as substitute and example. This faith which receives salvation comes through the divine power of the word and is the gift of God's grace. Through Christ we are justified, adopted as God's sons and daughters, and delivered from the lordship of sin. Through the Spirit we are born again and sanctified. The Spirit renews our minds, writes God's law of love in our hearts, and we are given the power to live a holy life. Abiding in him, we become partakers of the divine nature and have the assurance of salvation now and in the judgment. Now again, I believe this is well stated, acknowledging that in this process of receiving salvation, we experience something and we act, yet at the same time, it notes that both what we experience and our ability to act are the result of God's grace. You see, it says, when led by the Holy Spirit, we sense our need. One of the key parts of this whole process is our recognition of our need of the Savior. But we're incapable of that on our own without the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to our hearts. So even in this act of recognizing our situation, it's God who takes the lead, sending his spirit. And then not just that, also it says this faith then that we put in Jesus, this saving faith that we put in Jesus is a faith in us that is enabled again by an act of grace from God. So even though there are things we do to participate, those things we do find their roots in God's grace and his work in our lives. This doctrine ends with discussion of the change that salvation brings when the Holy Spirit enters our lives. It says, the Spirit renews our mind, God's law is written on our hearts, we receive power to live a holy life, and we gain the confidence of salvation both now and for the judgment to come. Now I suppose if we wanted to remain strictly hypothetical in our theologizing, we might just leave things here in a sort of abstract, feel-good kind of state. But I think we need more, lest we find ourselves settling for a power, powerless shadow of the deliverance that God actually intends, what some have called salvation, and fail to realize salvation isn't like a trust stored away for a time to come. Salvation is for right now. And back when we only had 27 fundamental beliefs, this is actually where we left this topic. 
But some believe there was a bit more to say, and I'm thankful they did, for that conviction gave rise to what we now call fundamental belief number 11, growing in Christ. By his death on the cross, Jesus triumphed over the forces of evil. He who subjugated the demonic spirits during his earthly ministry has broken their power and made certain their ultimate doom. Jesus' victory gives us victory over the evil forces that still seek to control us as we walk with him in peace, joy, and the assurance of his love. Now the Holy Spirit dwells within us and empowers us. Continually committed to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we are set free from the burden of our past deeds. No longer do we live in the darkness, fear of evil powers, ignorance, and meaninglessness of our former way of life. In this new freedom in Jesus, we are called to grow into the likeness of his character, communing with him daily in prayer, feeding on his word, meditating on it and on his providence, singing his praises, gathering together for worship, and participating in the mission of the church. As we give ourselves in loving service to those around us and in witnessing to his salvation, his constant presence with us through the Spirit transforms every moment and every task into a spiritual experience. So if I were to summarize for our purpose today these three doctrines and what salvation means, here's what I would say. First of all, it is an act of God for helpless sinners. Secondly, it is a response of recognition of the need of that act by those sinners. And third, it is a divine commissioning of saved sinners to God's purpose. An act of God for helpless sinners, a response of recognition by those sinners, and then a commissioning of those now saved sinners to God's purpose. And there's actually an Old Testament Bible story that I believe captures this construct perfectly. It's found in Isaiah chapter six. I begin reading in verse one. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, I don't know your mental state when you came in here today, if you were feeling pretty put together, feeling reasonably righteous, feeling essentially worthy to be in this place. But I'll tell you one thing I know for sure. If a vision of God like the one described right there were to suddenly appear in this church, we'd all hit the floor. There'd be no worries about dignity. I mean, consider, when you've got beings as amazing as the seraphim, the burning ones, these powerful angels, that if just one of them appeared in our midst, we would all be instantly terrified. 
Yet they, in the presence of God, are so overwhelmed by the goodness of God that they cover their faces, they cover their feet, and all they can do is cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If that's the way it is for those beings of perfection, imagine how overwhelmed we would be by a true vision of the glory of God. Well, that's exactly what happens. And that's what verse 5 says. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. A great act of God has occurred. He has revealed himself to Isaiah in his power, and Isaiah's response is the recognition that he is a sinner. Yet God is not done acting. He will act again in this story. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, you need to understand in this story, this story takes place before Jesus has come. And what is going on here is, is the symbols that God had established to teach us what Jesus would do. And so, we have to understand what this angel has done for us to truly understand how it applies to us. You see, the angel goes to the altar where the sacrifice for sin is made. The altar represents Jesus dying for our sins. And the angel takes a live coal from the fire, which is symbolic of the blood of Jesus. And then he brings that which is holy and which should in and of itself be of great harm and danger to Isaiah. I mean, how often have you bit into a live coal and had that go well? The angel brings what should bring pain and destruction to him. But because of grace and mercy, instead of destroying him, it atones for and takes away his sin. This is what happens to us when we come to Jesus. We should be destroyed by his righteousness, but because of the grace of God, instead, we're washed in his blood, our sins are forgiven, and we are made holy. And following that come the words of assurance. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. But here's the thing. We might be inclined, if we're thinking about salvation, to think this story ends here. An appearance of God, a recognition of sin, atonement sin taken away. But this is not the end of the story. There's a verse 8, and it goes like this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. It is part of grace and the miracle of grace 
that the sinner saved is not just saved, but also sent. We're not harvested for the kingdom and then laid aside in the barn for the day that Jesus finally comes again. Rather, we are saved to the kingdom and then sent forth on kingdom business. For Isaiah, this meant sent forth to a prophetic ministry. What does it mean for you? Just so you know, I'm not just making this up. I want to give you a couple New Testament passages that make these same points. And then we'll finish with a discussion on what it means to be sent out to do kingdom business. The first comes from Titus chapter 3. Titus was an apostle and a colleague of Paul. And Paul writes a letter to Titus. In Titus chapter 3 verse 1, he says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. All right, so my question, did you see the three elements in what I just read you? There is the act of God for helpless sinners. It's in verses four and five. It says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This is the act of God for helpless sinners. Did you see the part about the recognition of our sinful state? That's in verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. It goes on. And did you see the part about commissioning of the saved sinner to God's purpose? That came in verse 8. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. The helpless sinner saved by an act of God, the sinner recognizing the need of God, and then the transformed sinner going out to do the good that God has appointed. You see it again in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you catch the three elements again? You have the act of God for the helpless sinner, beginning in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. The act of God for the helpless sinner. You have the recognition of being a sinner. It begins at the beginning. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you once lived. But you also have the commissioning in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see how those three go together every time? Recognition of our fallen condition and our need of the Savior, God reaching out in graciousness to lift us out, and then God commissioning us to serve as citizens of his kingdom. We need to understand salvation is about all three things, including the acceptance of the Holy Spirit into our lives and the acceptance of our divine commissioning from God. There is much work that the saved need to do, not as the means of being saved, but rather the work that is the honored privilege of all who are sons and daughters of the kingdom. And we are honored to be called to be part of God's work. The grace of God is sufficient to save all, but being saved means being committed to following after God according to his calling on your life, even if that following is sometimes way less than perfect. You see, salvation is supposed to make a difference in our lives. And God is not honored when it doesn't. Jude takes an interesting perspective on this, both regarding how we treat our deliverance and how we treat our divine calling. Jude, verse 5, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. You see, God went down to help his helpless people and an act of grace delivered them from Egypt. But because they refused to trust him and travel to Canaan, they died in the wilderness. In verse 6, And the angels who did, not, who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on that great day. God has given us as well a divine appointment and called us to serve in our roles in his kingdom. 
So understand this point. Salvation is God's love revealed to us. But also understand another point. The love revealed is not the so-called love of permissiveness, where God says, well, okay, go on and keep living foolishly. Rather, God gives the love of enabling to righteousness, the love so well defined in the great commandments and in the Ten Commandments. God did not send his son to save you so that you would remain just as miserable after his grace as you were before his grace. Salvation isn't a trust stored away for a day to come. Salvation is now. It is an act of God for helpless sinners. It is a response of recognition by sinners and it is a divine commissioning of saved sinners to God's eternal purpose. And so all who have known God's grace will also hear this call. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. Have you heard that calling? Have you answered that calling? There will be many ways that you will be called to answer. Some will be pleasing. Some will be difficult. The recent passing of the young man, Will Green, has hit Alicia and I heavily and brought back to mind the days when we wondered if our son Nathan would live. Reflecting on that event, I recall some of you called us courageous. I don't know about that because I remember being pretty scared. What I remember is that we were just trying to live our conviction that God is good during a really tough time. And what hope we had at the time was not that Nate would survive, but rather hope in our faith that God is good regardless. Salvation called us to that witness. And though we bore it imperfectly, we sought to live it as truth. We gain strength from God's word to bear witness from a text my parents taught me when I was young and from another God gave Alicia and I to teach to our children. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. We rejoice that Nate lived. But our courage was not in the confidence that this would be the outcome, but rather that he who spared not his own son, but gave him freely, that his love would endure forever regardless. To live this faith is to live salvation. Now you know not all the stories we have known the past few years have ended with a joyful deliverance. I mentioned Will Green. It is a heavy calling that has fallen upon his family to live their salvation in the midst of loss, to continue to believe that God is good despite their shock and their sorrow. But when they do continue to believe that God is good, they shine before us like stars in the universe, just like the young man will, shone as a star all the days of his life. Pray for the Green family that they continue to live their salvation in this hardest of times. And continue to pray for the parents of Caleb Acosta, you remember? The shining young man who courageously battled cancer and blessed us with his faith, who lived his salvation to his last day. I occasionally encounter his mother in the grocery store. I don't normally hug people in the grocery store, so if you see me there, don't expect a hug. But I hug his mother every time I see her in the grocery store because she lives her salvation, her calling in the context of heavy sorrow, shining forth like a star from a place of great darkness. Many of you who hear me right now know what this is like because you too live your salvation in a very dark place. But being saved isn't just about where you go when Jesus comes. Being saved is for now, right now. Salvation is a calling, a calling to live like a child of the kingdom in a world where the enemy roams about as a roaring lion. Yet you, amidst the danger and darkness, keep your faith, keep your hope, and keep your love at all times in all things. Being saved is believing and trusting in God, going where he leads and doing what he calls us to do in our lives, in our church, and in our world. Every minute of your life, you live salvation. You shine like a star in the universe, 
holding out life to all who come near to you. And here's the amazing thing. We've been talking about these doctrines and how they're the frames that reveal the picture of Jesus. Well, you know what we realize suddenly about salvation? It's not the hypothetical doctrine that becomes the frame. You become the frame in which the picture of Jesus is revealed. When you live salvation, people see Jesus in you. Every minute of your life, you live your salvation. Let's all live like we're being saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your act of grace to helpless sinners. And together we acknowledge our need of a Savior this day. And we pledge ourselves according to your call. When you ask who will go for us and who shall we send, together, Lord, we say, here we are. Send us. Help us to live like we're being saved. In Jesus' name, amen.